Today, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We're taking a, a break. We'll be back in our uh, Gender and Identity series again next week for another lesson in that. But uh, we're in Luke chapter 5, continuing on in the Gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26, as we continue to see the ministry of Jesus in the personal and wonderful way that he ministered to people. One of the most recognizable stories in the Bible, the healing of the paralytic, has so many things to say to us today. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. If you would stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, and he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Verse 17, on one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of them were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we've got two sections in our passage here this morning. Uh, the first has to do with the healing of a, a leper, and the next, the healing of a, of a paralyzed man. So we're going to spend most of our time in the, with the paralyzed man, but I want to point out the continued themes that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke in this first section of verses 12 through 16. We see first the, the continued personal and supernatural ministry of Jesus Christ. The way in which he works with everyday people, the way he works with the sick and with the poor. In this passage in uh, chapter 12 through 16, there is a leprous man who comes to him. Back then, leprosy was the dread disease of the day, a communicable disease that was incurable and no one knew what to do with. And they took these people and especially separated them from everyone else so that their disease would not be caught by others and ultimately uh, destroy the society. So they, they separated these people. And this man comes to Jesus and it says he fell on his face. So he, he bowed his face down before Jesus and asked for Jesus to heal him. And what Jesus does is remarkable and worth noting. Yes, he does heal him, but what does Jesus do? 
It says that he reaches out his hands and he touches this man. They were called the untouchable people because no one wanted to touch them for fear that they might get this leprous disease. But Jesus, seeing this man's faith and having the power that he does, he reaches out and he touches this man and he says, be healed. And he is healed. And it's an important lesson for us that Jesus is always this way. When Jesus reaches out to us and touches us or is involved in our lives, it's not that he is changed by the wickedness of this world. He is not corrupted. Instead, he changes us and he takes away our sins. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. And that's what happens with this man. He is healed and he goes away rejoicing and he sends him away with an interesting thing. He says in verse 14, don't tell anybody that this has happened to you. We see this happen over and over. Jesus gives this, this call out to the people, don't tell anybody this happened. It's not really effective. People still go and they still tell everybody and this fame keeps spreading. But our understanding of that is that Jesus is not wanting to be crowned a political king. He doesn't want the people to rush in and force him to become their political messiah because he never came to be a political messiah. He came to be who he is, which is our spiritual savior and lord, the king of all kings. And so he sends him out and tells him to be quiet. But it says that his fame and the report about him just kept spreading. It could not be contained who Jesus was. And people kept coming from every corner and every village to hear about Jesus and who he was and what he was doing. But another theme that we've seen numerous times, we see here again in verse 16, is that in the midst of this busy, busy time, as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, it says they were so busy they didn't even have time to eat because people were coming in and out and in and out. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. What does Jesus do? It says he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We all live extraordinarily busy lives, and it seems like the more interconnected we get with technology, the more busy our lives get every day. Don't think that Jesus didn't live a busy life. He did. But he, he controlled that time, and he took time, made time to get alone with the Lord Jesus and to pray in quiet places that his soul might be strengthened and energized for the ministry that God had for him. And so these are themes that we have seen throughout the Gospel of Luke. Let's spend most of our time, though, this morning looking at this paralyzed man, because this story is absolutely fascinating. Uh, verses 17 through 26. We see three miracles in this passage. We see the miracle of the forgiveness of sins, which, by the way, is a miracle. It's something that only God can do. I tell you that often. What it means for something to be supernatural is that it is an act of God into the natural world. Only God can forgive your sins. Nothing else can take them away. So it is a miracle that this man is forgiven of his sins. Second is the healing of this man from his paralyzed state to walking. And the third is the miracle of Jesus reading people's minds. Okay, it happens twice in this. And it happens all over the Gospels where people are thinking something and Jesus just responds straight to them. And they're taking it back because I, you weren't supposed to be able to hear that. I was just thinking that. I didn't say that to you. But Jesus responds to them because he knows what they are thinking. In the parallel passages of this, because this incident is recorded in Matthew and Mark as well in detail, because it was such a shocking incident, it says that this was taking place in the town of Capernaum, which we understand to be Jesus' home base of ministry. Not where he grew up, but where he was basing his ministry from during his time there. And so people were coming from all over the place. And one group of people in particular that was interested in Jesus' ministry, for all the wrong reasons, but was coming to him, was this group called the Pharisees. And it said they came from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. 
The Pharisees were zealous keepers of the law of Moses. If we go back and read in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's many, many chapters that have to do with the law given by God to Moses. Civil law, having to do with how the nation of Israel was to govern itself. Ceremonial law, for how things were to function at the tabernacle and temple. and Moral law, law that carries down through to today, that had to do with our, our nature and how it is that we are to live right and wrongly before God. And this Pharisee group of folks were very zealous about keeping this law, but their zeal became misguided over time. Because their understanding of how best to keep the law was to make more laws on top of those laws to make sure we didn't break the base laws. So if the original law is don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, they extended that to we'll make a law that says we're never to utter the name of God at all and that way we won't actually misuse the name of God. Well, and they did this over and over and over and over until they created something called the tradition of the elders. And there were whole volumes of laws related to the traditions of the elders. And before you know it, Jesus is condemning them, saying that you follow the laws of men as if they were the laws of God. And they had multiplied their own rules to such an extent that their hearts grew cold towards the love of God. And instead, they were zealous about keeping rules that they themselves had made. And as we see throughout all the Gospels, this group of people actually spearheaded the opposition against Jesus. They were zealous in actively and openly opposing Jesus at every turn until they were actually able to convince people to crucify him, which ultimately ended up being the will of God. But they thought they had won a great victory by getting Jesus out of the way. There's an important lesson for us in the, the group of the Pharisees, and it is the idea that adding to the word of God is prohibited, and it does not help us. We're warned very clearly about this in the last chapter of Revelation, that we should neither take away nor add to the things of God. And when we add rule upon rule to the things that God has given us, we are not helping the situation, because you cannot add to anything that is perfect. Something that is perfect is right just the way that it is. And so if you take away something from it, it's no longer perfect. And if you add something to it, it's no longer perfect. You know, when Maria, she's a great cook. And when she does good, makes all kinds of great stuff, and sometimes, like, let me add a little bit more of this. No, that was too much. That, that was not good. Like, adding more is not always better. And in this situation, adding more is not better. Because what happens is that we begin to lose Christian freedom, and we add to our own pride. Because in the way that God has given us, the ways of the Lord, they are perfect ways. And they are ways that allow for joy and they allow for freedom. And they allow for us to love him and honor him in a way that will bless us. But when we keep adding to these things, we end up adding to our own pride as we follow the rules that we have made and congratulate ourselves on following those things. And so as in everyone's life, when we add to the things of God, it becomes a hindrance to our faith. And so it was with the Pharisees. But they were part of this crowd packed into this room, this house. So you've got a house with everybody jammed in. Think of whatever house you want to think of with people packed in tight to where you can't get another person into the room. And up comes from the outside four friends with, we don't know if it's a, it's a fifth friend or a relative, but someone in a, think of a stretcher like a medical litter with one guy on each handle carrying someone in the middle. And they come up to the house and the house is packed. Everybody's hanging out the doors. No one can get in. So this is a Middle Eastern house with a flat roof and a staircase apparently up to the roof. And so they carry their friend up the staircase to the roof. 
And Luke says that they go through the tiles of the roof. In Mark, the literal translation is that they unroofed the roof to get him through. And so think of this however you want to think about it. A packed house and like we're going to get our friend into Jesus. So let's break a window so somebody takes a cinder block and, you know, and then they, they take him and pass him through. Or oh, this, this house is vinyl sided. We're just going to cut through this vinyl siding and right through the sheetrock and we're going to go right into the house. Now... Don't think, it's, it's, you can think often of sterile environments in the Bible. This is not sterile, there's stuff falling from the ceiling while Jesus is trying to talk. And so then he stops and is like, what is going on? And the roof breaks open and everybody apparently stays there to see what is going on. And they make a hole large enough and then they lower this guy down in front of Jesus. I want you to see their passion for reaching Jesus. Their passion to get this friend in front of Jesus. They are desperate to get this friend in front of Jesus. Who knows where Jesus may go next. If he goes to another town and never comes back, we never have this chance again. It was a right sense of desperation. And they were willing to go to any means of determination to get this friend in front of Jesus. It is important for us to see this because we are often extremely determined to gain and get after the things of this world, but not determined to get after the things of the Lord Jesus. In his book, his biography of John D. Rockefeller, Ron Chernow writes about Rockefeller getting his very first real business job when he was a young man. He was in Cleveland. Cleveland was developing, and he buys himself a suit and decides he's going to go get a job. And so the way he does this is he takes the business directory of Cleveland at that time with hundreds and hundreds of businesses in it, and he starts going down the list, and he walks around this town and visits every single business and knocks on the door and asks for an interview with the person says, I'm, I'm good at bookkeeping, I would like a job here, will you interview me? Bam, George said, next one, I'm, I work for, I'm, I'm looking for a bookkeeping job, would you interview me? Bam, close the door. As the story goes, he goes for six weeks. He makes three full rotations through every single business in the town of Cleveland seeking a job, and no one will hire him. And on his end of the third rotation, someone finally gives him a job. And that was his start in bookkeeping, and away he went to be uh, who he was in the world. And he ended up, for his whole life, being the, one of the pinnacle examples of what it means for someone to be determined to get hold of the things of this world. But John D. Rockefeller is another story. He is, he is not a, a godly man. He was obsessed with the things of the world. I say that illustration only to contrast it with us and how often it is that when it comes to seeking after the things of the Lord, we throw out excuse after excuse after excuse. And we are not determined like these men were to get their friend or to get ourselves before the Lord, to clear away any issue, to look at our week, to look at our day, to look at our schedule and take hold of that schedule and rearrange it and orient it so that we have time to be with Jesus. And we're not going to let go of the day until we get in front of him, till we have time to be in his word, till we have time in prayer, because we know that it is the most important part of our day. We know unequivocally that these four men did this for one reason alone, and, as they, and that it is that they believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he could heal their friend. How do we know that? Because when they lowered him down, Jesus affirmed it by saying, your faith, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their heart. He knew the true nature of their heart and that they loved him and believed in him, and that is why they were doing these things. So we see in verse 20, 
They lower him down. In verse 20, it says, he saw their faith, and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He saw their faith and that he saw their heart. Jesus knew their heart. He knew what they thought about him. Only Jesus can do this. We look at others around us, our friends, uh, you know, those that we know at work, and we may think that we know their heart. Maybe even our own children, we think, we think we know their heart. But only God knows the true nature of your heart. But he knows it exactly. He knows exactly what is going on in your heart. And he saw the true nature of these men's, their, their belief, and that they demonstrated it by their actions, and he proclaims upon them the forgiveness of sins. But when he proclaims forgiveness of sins on this paralyzed man, the opposite reaction occurs in the Pharisees that are there. Because they know from the law of Moses and from reading the Old Testament that only God can forgive sins. So for Jesus proclaiming the forgiveness of sins on this man, he is by definition claiming to be divine. So many people will say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be divine. Yes, Jesus claimed to be divine. He went about doing the things that only God can do. And so he was either divine or he was blaspheming, which means uh, he, was, he was against the Lord. And so the Pharisees see it as blasphemy, and they are thinking this in their mind. And it says in verse 22, Jesus perceived their thoughts. Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. And whereas this one group was on fire with love for the Lord, this other group was a hardened, hardened adversary. And he could see in their hearts that they had no love for him and that they were against him. And in fact, that they hated Jesus and they opposed him at every turn. And the application for us here is obvious. What is going on in your heart this morning? I can't tell. You can come out here in the lobby and shake my hand and smile and tell me to have a great week and I'm going to shake your hand and smile and tell you to have a great week and who knows what's going to happen from there. But Jesus knows exactly what is going on in your heart this morning. I would like to read for you a section from Psalm 139 where the psalmist just lays this out so beautifully. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let me turn this page here. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall be about my night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you." The Lord knows us. He knows our coming out and our going in. He knows what is going on in our hearts. The darkness is as light to him. Often we, we go to dark places to hide things that we want to be hidden, but they cannot be hidden from the Lord. So why do we try? Why do we try to hide things from God? Why do we, why are we not just honest with God? Because he already knows everything that's going on in our heart. So I encourage you this morning that you might as well be honest with God and pour out to him what is going on in your heart because he knows it already. And Jesus deals directly with them 
And I encourage you to deal directly with God. He doesn't beat around the bush with them. This man who loves him much that is laying here before him, he proclaims upon him the forgiveness of sins. And it is a beautiful picture. You, you, we all have seen paralyzed people. And it's usually obvious. There's a deformity of the legs or an atrophy of the legs because they haven't been used in such a long time. And there were no nice medical equipment or things like this back then. You've got a person laying on a pallet that was lowered down by his friends and everyone can see what's going on. And he proclaims to this man that his sins are forgiven, which is unusual because that's not what he came there primarily for. Did he not come there to be healed, not to have his sins forgiven? But what did Jesus give him first? Jesus gave him first what he needed, not what he wanted or what he asked for. He gave him the more important thing first. And God loves us, and because of his love for us, he is often at work in that way in our lives, where he gives us what we need first, not necessarily what we ask for first. We're going to return to this in just a moment. But he deals directly also with the Pharisees. Because when he says, who can forgive sin, when they think, who can forgive sins but God alone, he tells them, I have the authority to forgive sins, and I'm going to prove it to you, if you will, by doing the, the, what appears to be the harder of the two things, which is the healing of this man. And so he heals this man and makes him whole. So a miracle comes to pass for a purpose and for a reason. But as we talk about this miracle, I want you to note, it doesn't change the hearts of the Pharisees at all. They walk away just as hardened. And so sometimes people will come to me and say, let's pray for this miraculous thing to happen so that this person will believe. You need to understand that the Bible is full of examples of where miracles of healing do not cause other people to believe. There's a different reason why the Lord heals physically. So this miracle, though, is complete, it is immediate, and it is performed upon an obviously paralyzed man, and it results in glory to God. We have some people in our day today that claim to heal, but they will keep away from them anyone that is obviously deformed or obviously has a problem because they are not, they're not true in what they're doing. Jesus took on the hardest cases because he had actual power. It says there in the passage, power was upon him from the Lord to heal. And so this man is radically changed. There's no question about it in the audience. It says the whole audience leaves saying, what have we seen here today? Because this was a work of the Lord. Because it results in glory to God. The purpose of the miracle was to affirm the divine nature of Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. Let me say that one more time. The purpose of this miracle, and I believe just about every miracle in the Bible, is to affirm the divine nature of Jesus, and in this particular instance, his authority to forgive sins. Jesus first gave this man what he needed, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not come with a mission to make all people in the world healthy. That was not his mission. Sometimes that is confused in preaching and teaching today, that it is God's will that all people be healthy. You will not find that in the New Testament, and you will not find that in the words of Jesus. Where do we find that in the Bible? It's called heaven. When all things will be made new and will be made right, that is heaven. That is not in this world. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came that people's sins might be forgiven, that they might be made whole in their soul, that one day they might be with the Lord and be made whole in body. He came to grant eternal life to those who believe that though we die, yet shall we live. 
And so verse 24 is where I want to camp out for the rest of our time together because it is so powerful. He said, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority to forgive He has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to this man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise up and walk. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This exact language is used in Matthew and Mark and here to describe what Jesus said during this incident. He wanted these people to understand that he had the authority to do this. What is authority? Authority is the power to give and to enforce orders. That when Jesus would say your sins are forgiven, that your sins are actually forgiven. And your state and your, your standing before God changes because of what Jesus does for you. In the Bible we see all kinds of authority coming from Jesus. Authority to teach truth. Authority to separate error from what is right. Authority over evil. Authority over sickness and death. We see authority to cast into hell and to judge But he also has authority to forgive sins. And he is the only one that has the authority to forgive sins. I was greatly affected by one of my uh, years in the Bureau where I spent almost the whole year and then some into the next year in a federal courtroom through a series of large cases that I was involved with. And it was there for the first time that I saw the authority of federal judges and how much authority a federal judge has over the life and liberty of a person. Based on what happens there in the courtroom, that judge can either set someone free or confine them behind bars for most or all of their life. And I will never forget the first time I was uh, a part of a sentencing, a significant sentencing, which is after the jury has come back and said that they have found this person guilty, it then is turned over to the judge, and the judge, within a certain amount of guidelines, when they're broad, there's a lot of leeway there, decides how long this person is going to go to prison. And this particular person, um, it's a long story, but this particular person was uh, was a law enforcement officer. And he had fallen into various corruptions and was found guilty of it by jury. And his family was there. And when this judge proclaimed that this man was going to prison for 25 years, his mother in that courtroom let out a wail like I have never heard. And she continued to just scream and wail in the back of that courtroom and ask for mercy from the judge as the bailiff came down and and locked this guy up and took him away. And it was the power of authority to condemn someone in a way that I had never seen. And when we think about authority, we must see the opposite of it as well, because just like there's great emotion attached with guilt and the proclamation of guilt, there is great joy attached with the proclamation of someone being set free and being told that they are not guilty. And this is what the scriptures are about, that you and I are guilty before God. But Jesus Christ came as our Savior. He came as a substitute for us and died upon a cross and bore our guilt in substitution for us that we might be proclaimed not guilty and that Jesus has the authority before God to say you are no longer guilty because I have borne your sin, that you might walk out free and under the blessing of God instead of under his condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came proclaiming a message of grace and peace that you might be forgiven. 
And it is by his great love, according to the foreordained plan of God, that Jesus took our penalty in his own body that we might be set free. That you might be forgiven. He has authority to forgive your sins today. Now, I don't know where you are today. I am certain that there are a number of you out there saying, who are you to call me a sinner? You don't have any authority to call me a sinner, and I would say you are right. I am nobody to call you a sinner. I come to you today, though, from the scriptures and from God's word, that where the Lord tells us that we are out of step with him, that we are living in rebellion against him. And I'm telling you that God is your creator, that God has authority over your life, but that God also has authority to forgive your sins. God has the authority to declare right from wrong as it is based in his character, and he has the right to you as his creation to tell you what is right from wrong and expect you to follow it. And in fact, we mentioned this a little bit last week, what it means to be created in the image of God. And that God, as part of creating us in his image, has put within us something called a conscience, a resident understanding of right from wrong. And every single one of you have it. And even though you may reject the idea that you are a sinner, there is a sense of guilt that arises in your heart when you rebel against the Lord because of the conscience that God has put in you. And every one of us, as we grow and get older and older, we have a choice of either stamping that conscience out and doing everything that we can to grind it to powder, or we can follow it and we can listen to it and have it lead us to the place that you really are today, where you are able to connect the fact that your guilt and the feeling in your heart is related to Jesus, is related to God, and that you are a sinner just like this man in this story, and that the only way to be forgiven is through Jesus Christ. But there may be others of you here that say, maybe I know I'm a sinner, but I don't believe in God at all. Not interested in hearing about God. And people have told me about God my whole life, and I just don't believe it. Well, perhaps you do not. But I know that you feel the sense of guilt and anxiety from rebelling against God because all mankind does. This is why we can send missionaries to the far ends of the earth and the message of God is willing and able to forgive your sins resonates with them because they have a conscience and they know that they have sinned against God somehow, even though they may not understand it. The guilt weighs down upon them and they have no sense of where it comes from. But this man, when he was lowered down to the ceiling before Jesus and Jesus proclaimed, your sins are forgiven, he didn't look up at Jesus and say, what are you talking about? This man knew also that he had sinned. He knew that he needed that forgiveness. Even though he didn't see it coming in this particular way, he understood the joy of, thank God that my sins are forgiven. He was the same as you and me. You have been made in God's image. You have an inner sense of moral right and wrong. And as you live in rebellion against God, you feel it in an indescribable way, the guilt and fear of separation from God and coming judgment. And like anyone who breaks the law in a law enforcement environment, they enjoy the rebellion while they're doing it. But at the same time, they're looking behind them all the time, never knowing when the law is going to catch up with them and their day is going to be done with what they are doing. People deal with their guilt in various ways who reject God and do not want to hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Very popular in our day and age are self-help books. If 
you go to Barnes & Noble, you're going to find a wall of self-help books and how it is that you can try to make yourself a better person. I was talking with someone this past week about that, and they're good. I have a lot of self-help books. How I can be uh, more, uh, more efficient in setting up meetings, how I can uh, talk to people more freely, all these types of things, and they're good. They help me to be a better in a certain way. But what I want you to hear me clearly is they cannot change the state of your soul before God. How to be uh, seven rules of being more efficient will not change your relationship with God. It will not rid you of your guilt. And you could read every self-help book in the bookstore and you will still not be free from the condemnation of sin. Some towards, turn towards fitness, exercise, diet, nice types of things. Oh, I'm going to become the best, you know, most fit person that I can be and I'm going to be a great sports figure and all this stuff and I'm just kind of outrun this. I'm going to leave it all behind. But it catches up with you because fitness and diet have nothing to do with the state of your soul. Some, it's seeking after adventure. I'm just going to go and see what the world has to offer and I'm going to do it all. And maybe one day I'll be able to forget all that this is weighing down, but it, it follows you. No matter where you go, what mountain you climb, what, what place you may dive in, you can't get away when you go to bed at night with the fact that you are under the condemnation of God. And so people often turn towards false religions, religions of works, or say, all right, I know there's some connection between me and God. And so I'm going to try to work my way towards God. I'm going to do enough stuff for God to where maybe God will be willing to accept me. But all of our deeds are as filthy rags. You know it if you're honest with yourself. Everything that you do is corrupt in some way or another. Everything I do is corrupt in some way or another. The motive of it, the reason I do it, the extent to which I do it, the extent to which I don't do it, it's all some way or another not fully the way that it should be. And so there's nothing that we can give to God to make him love us. And sadly, sort of the last thing in our day and age where so many people turn when they hit midlife and they realize that, I can't figure this out. As they turn towards alcohol and they turn towards drugs or they go to the doctor and say, doctor, what's wrong with me? And the doctor has nothing to say and so they write him a prescription for a drug and try to numb the pain and try to forget what is going on and we have countless people like that in our day which is like taking a rusty piece of metal or a rotten piece of wood and painting it over with a new coat of paint, hoping that it's going to cover it up. And it looks great for a little while, but then it starts to bubble up because the rotten wood pushes through and the rust presses through and it all falls apart again. Because you haven't dealt with the root issue of what is really wrong, which is the fact that you have a broken relationship with God. We must turn to Jesus Christ, the only one who is able and the one who is willing and the one who gladly extends to you the forgiveness of sins, that the guilt of your sin might be removed from your life. You can walk out of this place today like that paralyzed man walked out of that building long ago, joyful, rejoicing in God and saying, this is miraculous what the Lord has done for me but you must come and you must seek it you must ask you must confess your sins the last thing I would say before we go out from this place is a word to those who do believe because we have a great example here of these friends in bringing someone who could not bring themselves to Jesus and in some ways it's an example of those of us who know those who do not know Christ as their savior and we have a chance to go and tell them about him and do something to perhaps bring them to a place where they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ or bring the message to them directly do you do this Statistically, most people that are Christians, most people that have grown up in the church, never tell another person directly about the gospel. 
They're either afraid of it, they're scared of it, they're ashamed of it, or for whatever reason, they will not open their mouth to tell another another person about Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to not be that person. When you know in your heart that your coworker or your neighbor or your friend or your relative does not know Christ, speak to them. Do something, no matter how imperfect it is, if your heart is right in it and they know that you love them and you're trying to tell them something that will help them, they will see the rightness of your heart and do it. Do what the Lord urges you to do. Open your mouth. Take those who are around you and introduce them to the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that they might be made whole. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. And thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you that it is recorded for us here, that we might read it, that we might learn from it, that we might see the way in which you work. Lord God, we thank you for your authority over all things. But this authority would be a terrible thing if it were not matched with your perfect love and goodness. But when we take your love and your goodness and we match it with your authority, the most blessing, the most blessed thing comes out of that blessing for us that we might know you, that we might be forgiven. And so I pray this morning for every person, wherever their heart may be today, I pray that they would lay down their burdens before you, that they would confess their sins and understand that there is absolutely nothing that this world has to offer that will allow them to have peace with you except Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We commend ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.